If you'll turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 17 while you are doing that by way of rebuttal. I have learned in the three years I've been here that our CEO has an incredible memory. And anything you say can and will be used against you. His legal training shows. We're actually going to cover a lot of scripture today. Please keep your Bibles open and try to follow with me. I don't think we really understand the Christian life. We have a lot of mistaken notions. One of them is if you just can find the formula in the Bible. If you do this, this, and this, then you get that. That, by the way, doesn't work because that puts us in control. We have the idea that if you pray a mantra, and I've heard more mantra praying through the years than you might think, that that somehow is going to get it done. The truth is, The Christian life is not something mystical. It is the power of God demonstrated in the life of a believer. Simply put, to illustrate and hopefully motivate, I want us to look today thematically at Elijah's fire. 1 Kings chapter 17, I'm going to read one verse because we're going to go through several chapters really fast and I'm hoping that your memory of biblical narrative is great so we can draw conclusions as we move along. In 1 Kings chapter 17, and Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Elijah is one of those enigmatic characters in Scripture who just appears. By the way, he also disappeared. This particular chapter is the beginning of his ministry confronting one of the most wicked men who has ever lived. I have yet to meet anyone that has been named Ahab except the character in Herman Melville's book. I've never met anyone who named his child Ahab. I had a pastor friend who named his dog Jezebel, but I've never met anyone who's named Ahab recorded in Scripture as one of the most wicked men of his day. And Elijah pronounces judgment upon him. There will be neither dew nor rain for three years. In an agricultural society in which the importation of food almost did not exist, they had a real supply chain issue. That means serious trouble for everyone. 
from the king on down. It came to pass in chapter 18, after many days, that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show thyself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. As you recall, they met on Mount Carmel, where Elijah challenged Israel with these words. How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And that'd be a great text to preach this morning. If the Lord is God, why aren't you following him? The theological implications of that are huge. Elijah took on 450 adversaries, prophets of Baal, in particular Jezebel's prophets. He said, build an altar, choose an animal, butcher the animal, put it on the altar, just don't put any fire. This is going to be a contest between Baal and God. Don't put any fire there, but you can do whatever else you want to do, and they did all day, jumping up and down, even to the point of some bloodletting. They had special lancets that they cut their bodies and and let blood flow out of their bodies, I suppose, as some sort of an offering to Baal. And at the end of the day, nothing happened. Elijah rebuilt an altar using 12 stones for the 12 tribes of Israel, laid wood on that altar, placed a sacrificial animal, and then he did a strange thing. He dug a trench, a deep trench, all around that altar. He poured water on that altar, on that sacrifice, on that wood three times. He filled that trench with water. And then in 1 Kings chapter 18, it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell, and consumed the burnt sacrifice, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. I've never seen stone burn, and I've never seen fire lick up water. This was a demonstration, obviously, of the might and the power of God. But Elijah wasn't done. He took those 450 prophets down to the brook Kishon and he killed them there, purging the land at least to some degree of Baal worship. Look at what Elijah was vindicating here. He was first of all vindicating the holiness of God. This fire is to Show these people that thou art 
the God of Israel. He is vindicating the integrity of the prophet that I am thy servant. And more importantly, he is vindicating the truth of God's word that I have done all these things at thy word. While this fire was demonstrative, it always had a purpose. Some of you are aware that I grew up Bapticostal. And that's quite a cross-section. So much emphasis on experience. Your experiences validate very little. We have tendency to desire experiences to validate ourselves. We don't need validation. The truth does. And the power of God is for that purpose. I would have you note, second, what happens immediately after. Did you know that every great victory is typically followed by a significant trial? A man who trusted and believed God in the face of 450 false prophets and in the face of one of the most wicked men who had ever lived, who was, humanly speaking, defenseless before them, he knelt, he prayed, God sent a small cloud. He told Ahab, you better get back down this mountain. The rain is coming. And then he outran a chariot down that mountain. And when he got to the bottom and Jezebel heard what had happened, she said, so let the gods do to me and more also if I take not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. You may use a southern euphemism. Elijah lit out for the woods. Point is, you can't trust your flesh. Our tendency is to be up on the mountain and glory in the mountaintop, and then we get back down to the valley where the rubber meets the road and try to operate in the energy and power of our flesh, and we fail every time. So he made his way south. He lands under a juniper tree and wishes to die. He falls asleep. He is awakened and finds beside him a meal. The Bible says a cake, bacon on the coals, and a cruise of water. Now, Where did the fire of those coals come from? Same place the meat of the meal came from. God provided. That's the fire of God's provision. We love to quote Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19, don't we? Especially when we're in, in need. My God shall supply all your need, though we usually misquote the verse. How many of you, don't raise your hand. How many of you have ever said, My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus? That's not what the verse says. That's not even what it means. The word need there is singular. And what it means is that whatever you need to function, in the will of God, for the glory of God, God can provide. 
He does, and he will. Then there's a third fire in chapter 19. Elijah proceeded toward Mount Carmel, or from, I'm sorry, from Mount Carmel in the north to Mount Horeb in the south, deep in the Sinai Peninsula. Maybe really more over in Arabia. Took him 40 days to get there, traveling day and night in the strength of two meals that God miraculously provided. And when he got there, he crawled up in a cave and for the second time asked God to die. That's really fascinating because God didn't answer his prayer, at least not yet. God spoke to Elijah and said, come out of the cave. He stood at the mouth of the cave, the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice in which he rebuked the prophet for his fear and his despair. Here's the point. God can perform a mighty demonstration of his presence when he chooses. Can he not? He can part the waters of the Red Sea. He can part the waters of the Jordan. He can literally send a wind strong enough to break rocks apart if he wants to. But God does not need to do that to convince those who know and love him as to who he is and what our relationship is. God does not have to speak to you out of the whirlwind or out of an earthquake or out of a raging, miraculous fire. God can and most often does speak through a still, small voice of the Holy Spirit, and that small voice speaking in the heart of faith is a demonstration of the power of God, and that's enough. If you listen, if you will not believe when God speaks in your heart by the Holy Spirit through his word, you're not going to listen to the whirlwind either. You're not going to be convinced by a miraculous fire. Because God never ever teaches us to have faith in our experiences. He teaches us to have faith in himself and to believe his word. God does not have to operate in the way that we would prescribe I'm probably the only person in this room today who's ever been foolish enough to tell God how to do his business. To tell God when he needs to answer prayer. 
and the manner in which it needs to happen. I'm probably the only person here foolish enough to do a thing like that. God almost never acquiesces to my flesh that way. He wants me to trust Him, believe Him, listen, and wait. And then there's a fourth fire in the life of Elijah. This is found in 2 Kings chapter 1. This one is perhaps a little bit more obscure. Ahab had died of his wounds in battle in Syria. His son Ahaziah had succeeded him to the throne, and Ahaziah was just as bad as his dad. In the providence of God, he had fallen through a lattice, been significantly injured. Things did not look well for him. He sent messengers to go down to inquire of Beelzebub down in Ekron, which was quite some distance to the southwest, uh, uh, one of the gods of the Philistines, to find out whether or not he was going to live. Elijah intervened, met the messengers in some way, and said, go tell the man who sent you, he will surely die. Ahaziah was furious. He sent a troop of 50 soldiers and a captain to go find Elijah. Elijah was sitting up on a hill. He wasn't hard to find. The soldiers, the captain said, Thou man of God, the king has said, Come down. You think it was that arrogant? I do. You think it was that presumptuous? I do. Elijah's response was, if I be the man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty, and it did. You're going to find out that people who don't believe don't learn. So as I sent another band of fifty with another captain, I suspect this one spoke a little better because he said, O man of God, Thus saith the king, uh, thus hath the king said, Come down quickly. And again, Elijah said, If I'm the man of God, let fire come down and consume you. And it did. I think the king was probably running out of captains and fifties who wanted this mission. Sent a third band of soldiers to take. Elijah. And this one implored him, oh man of God, have mercy, spare our lives. And God said to Elijah, you can go with this one. And he did. Stood before the presence of the king and pronounced the exact same judgment that you are going to die. This is that fire of God that burns against the wicked in their rebellion against God and their designs against those whom God would use. I marvel at the presumption of the fallen nature. 
even when I disagree, and I do sometimes, I would never put my hand on a man of God. That's not my job. That's God's business. And He's sufficient. There's a fifth fire, and this one's wonderful. You find this in 2 Kings chapter 2. In this chapter, Elijah at this point is old, and he's headed for Jordan with Elisha trailing along behind him. Takes off his mantle, strikes the Jordan, waters part hither and thither. This is the second time that it happened. The Jordan will be parted three times in Scripture. This is the second time. On the way, once they get across, Elijah and Elisha are parted by a chariot of fire and horses of fire. Elisha cried out, Oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. This is the fire of promotion. What a way to go home to heaven. He still hadn't died. And then that brings me down to number six. And if some of the theologians disagree with me on this, that's fine. They can't prove me wrong either. This one is in the book of the Revelation, chapter 11. I said that Elijah's prayer to die had not yet been answered. But it will. Revelation 11, verse 3, And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. In verse 5 of that chapter, And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy and have power over water to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall uh, overcome them and kill them. Now, who is this if it's not the same two people who appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration with our Lord? The miracles are the same as were performed in the lives of these two men in the Old Testament. They were invincible until God was finished with them. I hope I shall not be offensive to anyone with this comment. But I have refused for the last three years to live in fear of contracting a disease. I've refused to allow that to dominate my life. Doesn't mean I've done dumb things. Doesn't mean that I've been unwise. But it does mean that I've refused to live under the cloud 
that has covered so much of our world and a lot of our country. Because I'm here until God is finished with me. And when he is finished with me, I have no desire to be here. How about you? All of these connections between a relatively obscure, in many ways, Old Testament prophet and a New Testament reference, if indeed that is who we're looking at, all having to do with fire. I'm going to make a really important conclusion. I hope you'll get it. I told you what the Christian life was not in the beginning. The Christian life, without the intervention of the power of God, is not just difficult. It is impossible. If you want to convince yourself of that, go somewhere after chapel and read through Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And look at what our Lord portrayed as the epitome of true spirituality as opposed to the superficiality of the Pharisees of his day. When you look at the things that God says in what we commonly call the Beatitudes, occasionally, not often, occasionally you may run into someone who says, well, I'm living the Beatitudes. I've never met anyone who lived the Beatitudes. That's impossible. Except for the power of God. You see, you don't have to be a mystic, and you don't have to be looking for ecstatic experiences to realize that the way God wants to operate in your life is not so much a literal fire, but the fiery demonstration of his power enabling you to do that which by yourself you simply cannot do. I think the charismatic movement and the really strange things that even followed that have caused some people to begin to minimize the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and you can't do that. And we've become entirely so regimented, completely dominated by doing things in our own if I may say this, Baptist rituals, I'm fearful that our churches are just doing church. We're just having church. One church as opposed to another may do it a little differently. And there's certainly nothing wrong with form and order But the reality is that most of us, when we go to church, are simply punching the time clock. Watching our clocks the whole way through with little or no anticipation or expectation that God 
will meet with us on the pages of his word through the ministry of his man. And we go to church looking for nothing, and we very often leave there receiving nothing, and we are unchanged, and we are frustrated, and we are continuing to try to do the impossible. Live the Christian life in the energy of the flesh. Now, why has God so designed it that we can't just keep the rules and be okay? Because God's goal in making rules is not just so you can be okay. The rules and requirements of Scripture, apart from the fact that they are designed to lead us to who God is, they're also designed to convince us that apart from His help, we just can't do it. I'll use a name that's lost on anyone who's probably under 50 years of age. Lester Roloff used to say that too often there's not enough fire on the altar down at the church house. For a work to be done in the lives of needy people. I know some of you look at the strange pattern of my preaching and the up and down of my voice and you concluded that uh, well he's just a southern preacher and that's the way they do it and there's some measure of truth to that but there's another side of it I'm passionate about what I'm saying I'm passionate about what I'm trying to communicate to you because God's passionate about you getting it Don't you ever get tired of yourself? Weary of the monotony of a basic, generally considered to be good Christian life, bereft of power, excitement, God intervening in you and through you, for his glory and the good of others. I was glad for the piece that was played as the duet. Revive us again. We don't need wildfire, but we do need fire. We need a fire in our hearts toward God. We need a fire in our souls toward his word. We need a direct intervention of the mighty power of God that we sing about, enabling us by his grace to live powerfully. Powerful living is produced by an omnipotent God in lives surrendered Faith motivated to do the will of God every day. Are you a person like that? 
Let's pray. Father, we are incredibly needy. I understand students feel pressed, midterms, assignments, projects, work responsibilities, issues back home, a world that is descending into chaos, thinking people are conscious that we are seeing things happening around us that impact us directly. And we wonder, and sometimes we fear, and often we resort to inner resources to try to pluck up enough courage to do what we think we ought to do. We know so little about true surrender and absolute dependence on your divine, promised, powerful presence. As the old, old spiritual song said, O Lord, send the fire just now. Because we need it. In Jesus' name, amen.